My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Hey Sunrise, this is Pastor James, and I'm just so honored to have been your senior pastor the last 21 years, youth pastor four years before that, and I'm just blessed to be a part of Sunrise. I want to live the rest of my days here Mm. ministering amongst this family that I love so much. Mm. But many of you know, last year I accepted a call to become the executive director of Conservative Baptist Northwest, and in August I actually began that job. And so really Monday through Friday I worked down in Portland pray for me. And I drive that every day and I go down and really I pastor pastors, 255 churches in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, a little bit of uh, just Alaska and a little bit of California. And I get to drive around. I get to share with people. I get to take what God has done here and I get to export that. And my dream over the next 10, 15 years in that job is to see that many more churches grow and become more like Christ and serve their communities. And so I introduce to you the lead team at Sunrise. Mm. Pretty much my job has been spread out. Pastor Kevin, what mm. uh, what is God doing in your heart? Yeah, I'm, I'm Kevin, the executive pastor, and my primary role is to shepherd our staff uh, spiritually, relationally, emotionally on a day-to-day basis. And so there are pastors that serve day-to-day yeah, around yeah. here with all the needs and shepherding. That's your care. Yeah, to care for them, provide for them, walk with them, support them, yeah. equip them. Shane, what about you? Yeah. Shane, I serve as the administrative pastor here, providing pastoral oversight to our finances and our facilities and the outstanding teams that are there. We just want to be good stewards of all that God has provided to sunrise through your generosity. And we are blessed to have had you join us the last couple of years. Thank you, my friend, because God's given you skills and giftedness and you like it. And that's good. When you like something, it makes it that much easier. And we like it. Yeah. And you do a really good job, especially overseeing that front staff and all that it takes to run the business side of the church. Really blessed to have you. What are you doing here, Taylor? Uh, I'm the youth pastor. That's so right. the most, most important, the job. most important job. That's right. Um, but you're more than the youth pastor. I mean, not just that you're a good friend. Uh, we really believe, I really believe that God has given you a voice. You've been preaching. You preached last summer for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have more opportunities as the days go by, uh, doing youth ministry. My three boys love you. And yet you feel that God's calling you to take some further steps. Tell us a little, just a little bit about that. I believe that God has placed on my heart to um, lead and influence the next generation That's of, right. you know, I know I, I shepherd the youth right now, but they are the now of what's to come and what God is using to build his kingdom. And so I just firmly believe that um, God has put a burden on my heart, um, put a call on my life to step in and to love shepherd this generation that God is raising up. And we at Sunrise affirm that, my friend. We really do. Uh, Barna did a research project recently and indicated that over the last 20 years, the average age of pastors, all pastors at a church, all of them, 
went from 35 to 45 to now 55 years old, which is where I am, I'm 54. And that means that we are not letting go. And we not only have to let go, we have to joyfully give away. And so over the next few years, that's, that's what we're excited about. That it's my dream, it's my hope, my friend, that you step into that position that I've had and that God continues the influence of Sunrise Church for generations to come. So thank you. Please pray for us. Uh, Pray for Sunrise Church as we continue this journey to see what God's Holy Spirit wants to do in His church here in Hillsboro. Seven years ago this month, I stood up here and I shared the idea of this baton. I actually had a baton for everyone who showed up that weekend at sunrise. These little plastic batons I wanted you to have, I wanted you to hold, because I wanted to talk about passing the baton of faith and specifically passing the baton of leadership. Because when you think about a baton, you think about a relay and runners in a relay, uh, this is how it works. You have different positions, different runners. You've got four people. You've got one position, two, three, four. As a team, you carry this baton all around the track. My wife and I, a number of Sunrise teams plugged into Hood to Coast, same idea with a wristband or something that you would carry, that each person would run their segment and run as hard as they could, but then at an exchange point, pass it off to that next runner so they could then burst out and they could continue running. And in a relay, imagine you're back in high school and it's time for you to, you know, to run a relay. You get ready, you're all geared up, you've got all your outfit, you're ready, you've got, you know, your identifier from your school, you've got the stands, you've got all the fans that are there, grandma's come from Eastern Oregon, she's excited to see you, and as you're there, you're in second position, you know you're part of the race, the gun goes off, you look behind, you see your first runner in your lane, just shoot out of the gate there, and as they run, they get to a point, you know what that means. It's time for you to pick it up and to start running. As you get up to speed, you reach back with your hand open, anticipating the moment when you feel this baton touch your hands and you grip it and you grab it and then you just run and then you do the same thing. Imagine what would happen if as you're running and getting up to speed and you reach back, you don't feel a baton in your hands. Imagine what would happen if What actually is you look to the side and that first runner runs right by you with the baton. Now, not only is grandma mad, you're mad because you trained for this. You've prepared for this. You have a part in the relay that now has been just passed by. And that runner not only passes you by, they pass the next person by. But you know, when you're sprinting that fast and that far, you don't have it in you to carry it the whole way. And you start to choke in that cough. And that runner begins to do that. And then they fall down to their knees. And then they fall down in the face. And the dust just flies up in slow motion as they reach up. And they wonder who is going to take the baton from them. That's really ridiculous. It would never happen that way, right? But I'm here to tell you it happens that way all the time in churches. What happens in churches is that pastors, leaders, grab a baton and they hold on to it and they run the course. But if they're not careful, they will hold on to this too tightly and not give up the leadership. As I shared that stat, Barna did the research and found out that the aging of pastors is producing the aging of churches. As all the pastors combined went from 35, 35 years old, 34 actually, 35 to, to 45 to 55, the churches are aging too. Large churches around the nation with a senior pastor that has planted the church and held the baton for generations, decades, They're actually aging as well. 
And if a congregation, if a church, if a leadership, if a pastor doesn't say it's going to be an intentional handoff, it won't happen. I've got friends who struggle with this. I just I put 800 miles on my car Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, visiting pastors all up and down I-5, down to Klamath Falls, meeting with uh, people, you know, at, through the, my job there at CB Northwest, and just hearing some of their stories. And I looked across the room, and pretty much all the groups but one had a bunch of gray-haired people in the room. All of the senior pastors have aged, and their churches have aged, and there are no young people to backfill them. So this is not just a problem of passing the baton of leadership. This is a problem of passing the baton of faith, that we as church in the United States, we're passing whole generations of faith, and the younger people are not coming up behind us. I've got one pastor, a friend in particular, and he's a great guy, and I've known him for decades, but he has held on to the baton of leadership at his church so long that all of the other pastors that have come up, been raised up, been promised the baton, but have been yanked back at the last minute, have gone off to plant churches, and now he is at the end of his life, the end of his ministry years, in a position where there's no one to take over the leadership of the church, and that church is going to struggle. And it is going to crash hard when somebody else comes in, when they have to go hire a corporation to come and go find a pastor. I just, I don't understand that. What I understand is that Jesus grabbed a bunch of guys and gals and he walked along a shore and he walked along the city and along the roads and he just invited people. Why don't you come and follow me? Why don't you come and be my disciple? In fact, you fishermen, why don't you stop fishing for fish? I'm going to teach how to fish for people. And these men and these women, they left their jobs, they left their futures, they left their families, they left all their hopes and dreams. They had no idea what was in store for them, but they knew this, Jesus was calling, and because Jesus called, they followed him. What Jesus was doing was he was passing a baton on, a baton of faith, and ultimately a baton of leadership. These guys and gals, they had no clue what was going to happen to them. They did not know that within 10 years, they would be turning the world upside down. They would be standing in front of kings and kingdoms proclaiming the message of Jesus. And they did not know that within decades, they would be giving their very life for this message. But what they did know was that God had shown up and God had called them through Jesus. And they said, sign me up for that. I want to follow If you read the Bible and you read the New Testament, the New Testament starts with four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are stories of Jesus. Those are the encounters that people had with Jesus. And they're chronicled, they're written down, they're they're, they're beautiful stories. And yet, they, they all end the same way. They all end with Jesus on the mountainside looking at these disciples going, okay, I've passed the baton of faith to you. I've passed the baton of leadership to you now. I've already died. I've gone in the grave. I've been resurrected. I'm now sending you out to share this message, to make disciples of all nations. You go, you baptize, you teach, and I will see you later. And they all end similarly. But if we didn't have one of those gospel writers the writer Luke, who told us the second part of the story, we would have missed out on so much of the church. And so over the next few months and this whole school year from September to May, we are going to walk slowly through the book of Acts and we are going to see what it means to be a witness to the life of Jesus Christ. Now, we didn't eyewitness him like they did, but we have experienced a witness, which we'll talk about today and the weeks to come. And the witness that you and I have experienced, although not in the same way that they experienced it, it is just as life-changing as what they experienced. It will also transform our community 
in the same way it did their community. And if you're the kind of person that, you know, it's chicken little and the sky is falling and all kinds of problems are going on in our world today and the, hell, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and you're just freaked out by the economy or by the president or by the politics or by Iran or Iraq or any other one of those countries or Cuba or Venezuela or whatever, just relax. Jesus is still here and he's still passing the baton of faith and passing the baton of leadership off to the next generation. And he's inviting us to do the same because the only way our nation is going to see any hope is through Jesus. It's through you passing the the baton to the next person. And so I love the book of Acts and I love what we're going to see in the months to come because you can relax. The ministry and the message of Jesus inside of you will still change communities. It'll still change cities. It'll still change countries. And so with that, would you open up the book of Acts? And it's right there in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And you will see it. It's not Acts, A-X-E. It's Acts, A-C-T-S. I know it's, it would be a lot more cooler if it was A-X-E, right? The book of Acts. Arr, you know, it's not. It's the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles probably better suited the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. We're going to see this story, the first 11 verses, and we're going to jump right into it. And we're going to take a look at this by seeing like a prelude. This is what Luke, who wrote another book called Luke, uh, actually writes about. He says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after given his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke wrote one of the gospels. I, I love Luke because it's more of a chronological gospel. It's more of a biography that we would be used to in our culture. And he describes from beginning to end the life of Jesus. But then he picks it up with the book of Acts. So it's kind of like Luke is the 1.0 and Acts is 2.0. Jesus and then Jesus now again, but fleshed out in his church. And Luke begins his gospel story, the, the, the book, with this word to this guy named Theophilus. And he says, you know, most excellent Theophilus, I want to make sure that you know that the faith that you have is real. And so I went back and investigated everything. I looked at eyewitness accounts. I interviewed people. I checked it out to make sure that your faith had a firm foundation. And I write this book. He starts Acts in the very similar way by saying, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is somebody that we know nothing about other than his name. Uh, it's kind of a cool name. Theo is the idea, the name for God, the word for God. And Philos is like a love or a brotherly love. So th- this name Theophilus just means lover of God. That's a cool name, cool nickname. Theo, you know, just call a friend. If you've got a friend that just dearly loves God, just call him Theo, you know, the lo- a lover of God. And so he writes this person, which could be a benefactor. It might actually be a person that helps sponsor Luke's travel and Luke's journey and all that Luke did to get all this information. And he says, I want you to know now the rest of the story. He says the story about what Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Because he died on a cross for the sins of the world. He was buried. I wrote all about that. He rose again and the people saw him and he appeared to many people. But then the book stopped. I want to pick it up so you know the rest of the story. So Jesus appeared for 40 days. After he suffered and died on the cross, he showed up again and he's eating with them. He's drinking with them. He's hanging out with them. And he's trying to convince them that he's really there because I'll be honest, 
you know, how do you really believe a guy who died is back to life again? Is it a ghost? Is it a specter? Is it a, is it a duplicate? Is it a, a twin? I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? You know, if, if you go to a funeral and in the midst of the funeral, open casket, the person jumps up and then you, you, they actually eat the macaroni and cheese with you after the service. That is quite strange, right? That just doesn't happen. So it took a while to convince the disciples, the doubting Thomases, that I'm really alive. And so Jesus has a message and a purpose because he's going to go up in just a few days. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the very first ministry message that Jesus ever had. He picked up from John the Baptist and he said, hey, come, repent of your sins, turn from your sins and turn to God, enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus talked about the kingdom of God as a very real place, but not a physical place, a spiritual place, that the kingdom of God was within. That God wasn't focused so much on what was happening on the earthly kingdoms, but on the eternal kingdom inside and that the eternal kingdom would be the one to actually change the external kingdom not the other way around so we keep going here in the next few verses once when he was eating with them he commanded them do not leave jerusalem until the father sends you the gift he promised as i told you before john baptized with water but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the holy spirit if you read the gospels and you see that night he's in the upper room with his disciples particularly the book of john highlights this jesus is all about this one message hey i'm gonna go away but god's gonna send another like me i gotta go away in fact it's better that i go away in fact you're gonna be happy that i left like what are you talking about that doesn't make any sense i'd rather have you jesus and jesus goes no you're better off without me because you're gonna get the holy spirit they had no idea what it meant and you're gonna get a comforter you're gonna get an encouragement you're gonna get an advocate somebody who is standing and working on your behalf and doing this work in you and through you and the whole world is gonna know about me And so he begins to tell them about this Holy Spirit to come. And so then the the verses continue. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, Lord, what about us? What about this kingdom? What about these thrones? I thought we were going to sit there. I thought we were going to rule. Has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Is it time, God? Are you going to show up? Are you going to rule and reign on the earth? Are you going to overthrow the Roman Empire, the empire that is crushing us, the empire that is restricting our freedom of worship? You know we should have freedom to worship. I mean, but we don't have that. Are you going to do this? Can we pick up the sword? Can we see you on a throne? And Jesus isn't concerned about that. In fact, he goes on to say this. He says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates those and times. They are not for you to know, but this is for you to know. Let's get to the real thing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. Now, just for a second... That's a beautiful, verse 8 there, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's a beautiful thing. And, and so I, um, I, I looked that up in the original language and I dug deep into the words and the meaning and I've got some really good news for you. What that originally meant was that pastors who work in churches will receive power to do the work of telling other people. That missionaries will receive the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. That evangelist. So if you're not one of those, you're off the hook. So you can just come to church. In fact, you can just come to church and you can sing some songs and you can hear a sermon and you can have some fellowship time and some coffee and you can hang out. You can go to a small group and you can do that and you're off the hook because it's not about you anymore, right? That's not what it says. It says you. Now, just just to see if some of you are awake because it's Sunday night, I get that. You maybe didn't have your nap. You know what the word you means? Yeah, it means you. It's, it's that easy. 
but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses and you will tell everybody everywhere about me. And what he did, it was just so cool. Jesus outlined the whole book of Acts right here. He said, it's going to be in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Judea. Then you're going to go to Samaria. Then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And you're thinking, I don't know what that means. Let me show you on a map. It's kind of cool. It's really simple. This is a little, uh, this is in my lead class that we teach here as one of our steps classes uh, in discipleship pathway. And so this is Israel, the, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Starts in Jerusalem, the epicenter of all things theological. The temple is there, and this is where it all happened, where the Holy Spirit came down, where the disciples were, the apostles were all gathered. The Holy Spirit moves there, and the church is born. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. What I do is I just think about that as my hometown. So for me, that's Hillsborough, all right? So if you don't live in Hillsborough, pick your town, right? So you will be my witness in Hillsborough. And then he says, then you're going to go, to go out to Judea. And that's the countryside. That's the bigger area. That's like a district or like a county. And that would be like saying, you're going to be my witness in Hillsborough and throughout Washington County. And then you're going to go to Samaria. What's Samaria? Well, Samaria wasn't necessarily just a location. It was that. It was more about the people group. It were people that were different, that were strange, that had different language, different theology, different identity, different religious background. And so when you think about that, that would be like, you know, today, maybe going next door, because <laughs> thanks to Intel, we have all of that right next door to us, right? It's awesome. So it'd be like saying, okay, to a different language group, to a different people group, to something cross-cultural that's outside the comfort zone, go to them, and you're going to be a witness to them. And that's going to be hard, because you might have some racist views. They definitely had racist views about anybody that wasn't Jewish. You might have some fear. They definitely had fears about the Samaritans. You might have some people saying, what are you doing going there? You can't even go into their territory. You might have that, but you go and you break through all those barriers and you share the gospel, the good news about me to the Samaritans and then to the ends of the earth. And that just means everywhere that you're going to tell people about me everywhere. You're going to go and you're going to baptize and you're going to teach and make disciples to all the people groups of the world. And so Jesus is saying that it's got to start in your heart. I remember years ago when I became senior pastor, our evangelism budget, our outreach budget consisted of nothing more than checks we wrote to missionaries overseas. Now, I love missionaries. I visited all of our missionaries overseas. I feel passionate about missions overseas. I've been doing that for 12 plus years, training pastors overseas. But if a church only does that, that is a fail because it's got to start here. And so I said, we are going to take this verse, Acts 1-8, and we are going to make that our mission strategy, which means, yeah, we'll still support foreign missions, but we're going to start in Hillsborough because if we can't make a difference in Hillsborough, why are we sending checks to people to do our job, right? It's our job here. Let's not just abdicate our responsibility by writing checks of money so they'll do it. Let's do it in Hillsboro and let's start to see a result. And then in Washington County and let's find some cross-cultural experiences. And for us, Light My Way was the first one, a Hispanic community. The next one, our Indian community, some of the different people groups we're trying to reach, trying to build relationships, anybody outside our comfort zone, basically. And now let's go to the ends of the earth. This year alone, Lord willing, we'll be able to send out four people or couples actually out on the mission field from Sunrise Church because I believe it's got to start here in our heart in this room in this place and then spread out that way so that we are the ones who are being the witnesses 
Now, Jesus wraps this up uh, down to verse 11. He says, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you acting like knuckleheads? You know, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So get busy. He just said you're going to be witnesses and now you're staring at the clouds, right? Yeah, he went away. He's gone. That was the ascension of Jesus. But we'll see this next week. The Holy Spirit's going to descend and you guys are going to go crazy with this message. So you better get ready. You better start praying. You better start welcoming this new life that you have in Jesus Christ. You know, a cool thing is the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will come back again. And history says this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that he will come down and he will step his feet, place his feet down on the Mount of Olives where he was when he ascended this little tiny hill right next to Jerusalem to the east past the Kidron Valley, and when he does, it will crack. It will split north to south. Did you know that people who've done the work of geology, they have found out now that there is a major fault line that runs the middle of the Mount of Olives there. When they were doing the construction of the International Hotel, the one with the seven arches, if you've been there, you've seen pictures up there, they decided they couldn't build it there because it was a fault line, so they moved that south. And geologists have discovered that just a major earthquake could split that mountain north to south. I'm like, oh, I already knew that. I didn't need geology to tell me that. The Bible told me that. And it's going to happen, and one day Jesus is going to come back and bring in the end of all times. But until then, you and I have a mission. You and I have an opportunity to be witnesses. Look what, if we go back to just that verse 8, I want to highlight a couple things. This is chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. The word power, original word in Greek is dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. And what this is, the idea behind this word is just miraculous power in action. It is might, strength, being able and capable. What Jesus is saying is all the power you need to do what I'm calling you to do is going to be inside of you all the time. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went depending upon the situation. But lives weren't necessarily changed. There were some pretty bad people, okay? But now the Holy Spirit's going to come inside of you and reside in you. And the reason he's going to do this is not so you can have awesome worship experiences. Not so you can just go, you know, fly out and speak in tongues and do all these kind of crazy things. Not so that. Not so that it can be like this thing that you experience. You're going to receive power. The ability to do what I've called you to do because that's the point. I've called you to be a witness. It's not power for you. It's power to witness. And the word witness here is the word martus, one who shares what he or she has seen, heard, or experienced. Now, there's the cool thing about this. Uh, We've been in services 46 minutes. And so for 46 minutes, you have seen and you've heard and you've experienced something. If you were to go out today, by the time it's over, about an hour and 15 minutes or four hours, if I don't get on with the sermon, um, you will be able to walk out and you will be able to tell someone tonight what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced. Somebody goes, hey, what'd you do tonight? I went to church. Tomorrow morning, what'd you do this weekend? Ah, Sunday night, I went to church. Really? Tell me about it. I don't know. Well, what do you mean? What'd you see? Well, and you start talking. What'd you hear? I heard this. What'd you experience? This. That's it. That's what a witness is. Somebody who just says, I saw this, I heard this, I experienced this, I witnessed this. This was like me. I was a part of this. This isn't hearsay. This is me. I saw this. 
when I was in high school, I worked at a, a, a gas station. I've talked about this, Five Corners Automotive. And I'm down in Petaluma, California, and I'm pumping gas, and I'm, you know, learning to care for people, and so I can care for their car to care for people. And we had full service and self-serve, but Dave, my buddy, the boss, he said, treat everybody like a full-serve customer, wash windshields, check the air in the tires, check the oil, just take care of people. So I'm doing that. I'm kind of just, you know, caring for folks. And out of the corner of my eye, I look kitty corner across the street, up a little hill there, and I notice this this guy, this high school guy, someone my age. In fact, I look at him and I, I recognize him. And I remember his name, you know, and he, he and I went to elementary school together. He was kind of a punk back then. And, and I look at him and I realize he's kind of a punk still because he's casing the joint. He's walking back and forth on this hill to look at this house, but not the house, but the motorcycle that's on the porch. Well, motocross motorcycle, and I can still see it. I can st- I still remember it. It's like this house was gray with white trim, and the, the motorcycle was there, and he walks back and forth. He goes up on it, and he picks up the bike, and he starts dragging it. It's chained up, the, the back wheel to the frame, and he drags it up over the hill. It's gone. I'm like, man, that guy just stole that motorcycle. And so when I was done work, I went over there, knocked on the door, and there's nobody there. Left a little note. The next day came back on Saturday, knocked on the door. I said, hey, um, did you have a motorcycle on your porch? Yeah, we had it for sale and somebody stole it. I go, yeah, I saw that. They're going, you're kidding. They called the police. You know, they did the report. They put some pictures down there. And I go, oh, that was the guy right there. I even named his name. And they go, well, we already knew that was the guy because the moron called that night to sell the bike back to the guy. It's like, so it's not a very smart kid, okay? And I go, that was him. But we didn't have an eyewitness. And so within weeks, I was in court, and the judge called me, and I sat there in the bench, a little witness stand area, and both attorneys just asked me, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you experience? And all I did was just say that. I just, this is what happened. I was pumping gas, and I just told the story. I didn't have to make anything up. I didn't have to embellish it. I didn't have to worry. I personally saw something. I personally heard something. I personally experienced something. I was an eyewitness. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying you and I are to this life of faith. We are witnesses. We have seen, we've experienced it, we've tasted it. Even if it's just 46 minutes worth, you know enough to share that, right? Now, if you look at this word, martus, it later changed its definition. And today, if you look that word up in the dictionary, it's the word martyr. And the word martyr is somebody who dies for their cause. How did the word witness become the word martyr? Well, the first 300 years of the church. If you read Fox's book of martyrs, you will discover that they took Jesus' call to be a witness in spite of any odds that were against them. And it's in spite of the fact that the Roman Empire hated the Christians, that the Christians were somehow subverting their authority with their one God, Jesus, and denying all the other gods. That Christians would move into communities and they would cause the worship of idols to go away and a worship of just Jesus. That they were losing their influence, their priests, their temples were being emptied out. That they were losing their authority with the highest of the highest because the emperor himself was part divine. In 156 AD in Smyrna, which is an area in uh, Izmir, Turkey now, 
um, this gentleman here, Polycarp, was the bishop or the overseer. Now, Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle John. And so Jesus was the one who had the baton, and he passed it on to John, his disciple, who then wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And John, out of all the disciples, was the only one that did not die for the sake of Christ. He was dipped in, you know, boiling oil, and when he didn't die, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he encountered Jesus and wrote Revelation. All the other disciples died horrific deaths for the cause of Christ, the witness. And so Polycarp was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. And Polycarp was pastoring this community and sharing the message of Jesus Christ. When he was 86 years old, the Roman authorities had had enough. And in a wave of persecution as it spread through, they sought to destroy all of the key leaders so they could put out this cult, they call it. And so the authorities sent soldiers to arrest Polycarp. When the Christians heard that, they said, Polycarp, you have to flee. He said, no, God's will be done. When the knock at the door came, they urged him to flee out the back. He said, no, God's will be done. The soldiers came bursting through. Polycarp served them a meal and he sat with them and he asked them one favor. Would you give me one hour to pray? And so they said, yes, because of his hospitality. And he prayed such a fervent prayer that when it was over, the soldiers apologized to him for what they had to do. And they took him to the governor, the proconsul. And the leader of that community said, Polycarp, I'll let you free if you do one thing. If you just renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. Just offer up some incense to the emperor. Now, what's interesting about Smyrna at the time was they were a neo-chorus. A neo-chorus was a town, a specific place, a location that had said, we want to be the number one place known for worshiping, not the idols, but the emperor himself. And so every year there would be a vying of who gets to be the neo-chorus, who is going to devote their city to worship of the emperor, a man who is now a god in their eyes. And Pergamum and Ephesus and Smyrna were the ones that were vying for this. And three different times, Smyrna became the place where if you really want to worship Rome, you go there. And so the proconsul said, all you have to do is just burn some incense to the emperor. You'll be free. And this is what Polycarp said. 86 years I have served him. And he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? If I lie and say the emperor is God to save my life, I couldn't live with myself. All of those followers of Christ would know I denied him. I can't deny him, even though I know what it means. The governor was furious, had him bound, taken out to the arena, And as he's there, as they're preparing his death on a pole with the sticks and the twigs and all the the fire that's going to rise up around him, they go to nail him to that. He goes, you don't have to do that. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to flee. They tie him with ropes around there. And the proconsul gives him one more chance. And he says, all you have to say is away with the atheists. Now, scratch your head because 
I don't know if you realize this, but we were the original atheists. So, because we didn't have a real God, meaning we didn't have a temple and an idol and a place and all that stuff. And so all the Romans said Christians were the atheists. That'll tweak an atheist's mind if you go talk to someone this week. Go, you're an atheist? That's good. So am I. I'm an atheist. I, I just believe in one true God. Well, so he said, all you have to do is just say away with the atheists, meaning away with the Christians. And Polycarp stood there, and he looked up at the crowd of jeering, mocking people that were celebrating his future burning to death and pain and suffering. And he waved his hand to those people. He said, away with the atheists, because they don't really believe in the true God. And he willfully went to his death as they burnt him on a pole. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, they estimate maybe 10 million Christians died for their faith. Christian History Magazine just said that as best they can determine in the last 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross, 70 million Christians have died for their faith. They have been martyred. They have been witnesses to the point of death. Tertullian, a church historian, early church father, wrote it this way in 197 AD. Crucify us, torture us, condemn us, destroy us. Your injustice is the proof of our innocence. When we are condemned by you, we are acquitted by God. And then his famous phrase that is known so well, the blood of the witnesses, the martyrs, is the seed of the church. You try to take us out, and that many more will come to faith. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see story after story after story of when people like Polycarp or Perpetua or all these people that were taken to their death, when the crowd, when the Roman soldiers, the captors, saw how willingly they died and how peacefully they died for Jesus in the midst of a horrific death, they willingly proclaimed Christ as Lord, and then they were killed in the next instant. And it just kept on and kept on and kept on. Because how could you believe a true God that would rescue even from death? And the Roman authorities could not stamp out the message of Jesus. Because what? You were being a witness. All you were doing was sharing what you saw and you heard what you experienced. And more and more and more people saw this. And this spread out to the Roman Empire. And by 300 years after Jesus, the whole empire became a Christian empire, which ruined the whole thing, if you ask me, but that's a history lesson we could argue about later. But the fact is, is that Jesus won, and not by power and not by might, but by God's spirit working through you, the church. And now you and I stand here 2,000 years later. We sit here in church buildings, and I think we've lost the whole point of church I'm glad we have a building. Did you love the rain? It was crashing down. I'm thankful we have a roof that's sealed up. Anybody with me on that one? Right. We've got heat. We've got air conditioning. We've even got comfy seats for your comfy butt. Isn't that awesome? We care for you, right? Big screen so you can see it all. Lights, sound. That's great, my friends. But when all of a sudden done, done, this isn't church. You are church. We are church. And I'm glad that we have the freedom in our country to be the church in this way. That's awesome. But let's not get confused. This thing that we have here is not going to change the world. You are going to change the world as God's spirit works in you and through you to be a witness for other people. There's this beautiful passage of scripture uh, from 1 John. And I just want to share it and, and go on to close. John, who is that disciple who 
was the one then that wrote a gospel and then he wrote first, second, third John and then Revelation, the one who was the disciple who discipled Polycarp said this at the beginning of his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have faith, have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These words that I highlighted in yellow are beautiful because four different ways John says, I want you to know that this is true. John writes this maybe 95 or 105 AD, potentially 60, 70, 80 years after Christ has gone. And he says, I, here's what I want you to know. He says, that which I heard, and, and this is cool because the words that are highlighted in yellow, these, these verbs in the original language have a past event to them, but a continuous reverberation to them. They happened but they're still happening. This is so cool. So John is saying this, that which I heard, I heard the words of Jesus for those three plus years. I heard him speak. And if I just shut out all the other noise, I still hear his voice. It's still speaking. I can still recognize his voice. That which I heard, which I saw with my eyes. If I close my eyes, I can still, it's like yesterday, I remember seeing Jesus come up to me and my brother in the boat and say, Come follow me, fish for people. I can still see Jesus handing me a basket that he blessed and then I handed it to others and there was so much food, 5,000 people plus were, were fed. John says this, which I looked at, that's the word observed intently. For three plus years, I watched this guy and he was exactly who he says he was. And I can tell you that those things are still in my mind as if they were yesterday. And then touched, oh, I was the one, I was there, I touched him, he touched me. In fact, I still remember when just me and the ladies were there at the cross when he was crucified and he died. And when those soldiers rammed that spear up inside of him and blood and water gushed out, indicating he was dead, dead, dead. When they didn't need to break his legs because he had already breathed his last and we took him down, I touched his body. And Joseph and I and the ladies carried his body to the tomb and we wrapped him and anointed him. And we went home brokenhearted. I still remember what his skin felt like as I touched it. And John says this. He says, we have seen it and testified to it. That word right there, it's the same word. We get the word martyr, witness. I'm an eyewitness and it's still changing me. 60, 70, 80 years later, that baton of faith that Jesus passed to me is still reverberating. I can still feel it. And my friends, you have a baton of faith if you have faith in Jesus. And the fingerprints on the baton go all the way back to Jesus' fingerprints. To then John and Matthew and Mark. To historians like Luke. As they shared to Polycarp. As he shared. And then a disciple was made. And then another disciple was made. And then another disciple was made. And a baton was passed. And then a baton was passed. And for 2,000 years, batons have been passed. And you are now holding a baton of faith as a witness to Jesus Christ. In October of 1970, down in Petaluma, California, a young high school student named Doug Bradley 
started going to First Baptist Church. And he went to the church and he'd heard a lot about Jesus. But finally, through the relationships, the friendships of youth group, and through going on a monthly uh, youth rally at different churches, he ended up at a church in Windsor, California, just north of Petaluma, Hillsburg area. And he was at a youth rally on a Sunday night and it just all clicked. And he received Jesus Christ in 1970. Three years later, he's talking with a young high school friend, Doug Rowland, and he and a buddy are trying to convince Doug that Jesus is real and that when you look out at the stars, because they were out at a farm and they were looking out and seeing the stars, that is God evidencing himself to you. And the Bible says, and they were talking about revelation and scaring Doug Rowland to death, basically, he told me the other day. And he, and he said, I finally believed it. And Doug Bradley passed the baton of faith to Doug Rowland three years later. In September of 1973. And then in November and then December of 1979, these guys ganged up on me. And they beat me over the head with their baton to the point where I, this is real. And they passed the baton of faith to me almost 40 years ago now. Just a couple months shy of 40 years, this baton of faith was passed to me. And for those 40 years, I've been passing it on to others. My friend, I hope that's your life. I hope your Christianity is not about grabbing a baton of Jesus and sticking it in your back pocket and going, well, I've got mine. I'm getting to heaven. Because you were not handed a baton to hold on to and run the race alone. You were handed a baton to pass to the next generation. That is, unless you don't have a baton. Unless you're at the track meet, awesome track outfit, stretching and getting ready, but you're not actually in the race yet. You're just on the sidelines. My urging is get a baton. Come to faith in Jesus. If you don't know much about that, we'll talk to you right after service. I'd love to meet with you to tell you who Jesus is, why he came to forgive you and free you of all your sins and to give you a purpose and a life that will last forever and that the kingdom of God will be inside of you and you will be changed and you will then hold a baton so you could pass it to others. But if you're like most of us here, myself included, my question is, what are you doing with your baton of faith? Are you passing it? Are you actively looking for the next runner? Are you getting up to speed as they reach their hand back and with the power of the Holy Spirit, are you sharing the faith and you're doing exactly that or are you afraid? I'm afraid every time I share the message. It's weird. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor, but I, I get concerned. I, I doubt the message sometimes. I go there, I'm in the coffee shop and I'm sharing, I'm drawing on a napkin. I'm like, are you sure you want to receive Jesus? I do. Let me just tell you one more time just to make sure, just in case you're confused. And this last one, it was, it was this... Uh, probably about February, March, as I'm sharing with this guy. And he's like, I want what you have. And I'm like, are you sure? Let me just tell you one more time. It's like, I have doubts too. And I'm like, okay, here it is. And I go, do you want to pray to receive Jesus? He goes, yeah. I go, when? He goes, right now. I'm like, are you sure? I mean, I'm thinking, I'm going to mess this up. I, I, you know, I've been doing this so much, but I, all, all of a sudden, I see the scales fall off this guy's eyes and he prays to receive Christ. I'm sitting there going, how does this work? This is amazing. This is a miracle. Jesus still does this. And, and even though I'm feeble, and even though I'm weak, and I struggle, I get to pass the baton of faith off and make a disciple who one day is going to make another disciple, who's going to make a disciple and until Jesus comes back. And we will all give him our batons of faith back. But that's if you're doing it. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the fact that you had a plan, and that plan was not to hold on to it, but to give it away. 
And as we as a church give away leadership and we give away direction and we give away to the next generations, I pray that that is such a hallmark of our church that churches are not just strengthened by it, but they explode with faith because of it. And as we pass the baton of faith off, God, I pray that you would be giving us the boldness because you've already given us the spirit to be a witness to what you've done in and through us. It's just up to us to grab that baton and pass it to the next person. May this study in the book of Acts not just change our church, but change our hearts first. We pray in your name. Amen.